Welcome to the Pater the Water Dog Saves the Planet Peace Podcast. We are continuing on with our reading of John Muir's studies in the Sierra. I was initially reading from the Sierra Club website. The link to that is in the show notes to access the full book. But I did buy the book. I need to look and see what printing it is, but it's just a beautiful blue cover with one of his drawings on the front with kind of a copper rust spine. And it feels good to hold the book in my hand. This is chapter two, Mountain Sculpture Origin of Yosemite Valleys. All the valleys and canyons of the western flank of the Sierra between 36 degrees and 39 degrees north latitude naturally classify themselves under two genera, each containing two species. One genus comprehends all the slate valleys, the other all that are built of granite. The latter is far the more important, both on account of the greater extent of its geographical range and the grandeur and simplicity of its phenomena. All the valleys of both genera are valleys of erosion. Their chief distinguishing characteristic may be seen in the following descriptions. Slate Valleys 1. Cross-sections, V-shaped or somewhat rounded at bottom, walls irregular in structure, shattered and weak in appearance, because of the development of slaty cleavage planes and joints, which also prevent the formation of plain-faced precipice. Bottom showing the naked bedrock or covered by rocky debris and sloping in the direction of the trend. Nearly all of the foothill valleys belong to this species. Some of the older specimens are smoothly covered with soil, but meadows and lakes are always wanting. 2 more or less widened, branching at the head, bottom with meadows or groves in lakelets or altogether, sections and wads about as in number one. Fine examples of this species occur on the headwaters of the San Joaquin. Granite Valleys 1. Cross-sections narrowly or widely V-shaped, walls seldom interrupted by side canyons, magnificently simple in structure and general surface character, and presenting plain precipices in great abundance. Bottom sloping in the direction of the trend, mostly bare, or covered with unstratified glacial and avalanche boulders, groves and meadows wanting. Two, branching at head with beveled and heavily abraded lips at foot. Bottom level meadowed, laked, or groved, Walls usually very high, often interrupted by side canyons. Sections as in number one. To this species belongs the far-famed Yosemite, who origin we now discuss. We will henceforth make use of the word Yosemite, both as a specific and geographical term. Yosemite Valley is on the main Merced, 
in the middle region of the range. It is about seven miles long from east to west, with an average width at bottom of a little more than half a mile and at the top of a mile and a half. The elevation of the bottom above sea level is about 4,000 feet. The average height of the walls is about 3,000 feet, made up of a series of sublime rock forms varying greatly in size and structure, partially separated from one another by small side canyons. These immense wall rocks, ranged picturesquely together, do not stand in line. Some advance their sublime fronts far out into the open valley, others recede. A few are nearly vertical, but far the greater number are inclined at angles ranging from 20 to 70 degrees. The meadows and sandy flats outspread between support a luxuriant growth of sedges and ferns interrupted with thickets of azalea, willow, and briar rose. The warmer sloping ground along the base of the walls is planted with noble pines and oaks, while countless alpine flowers fringe the deep and dark side canyons, through which glad streams descend in falls and cascades on their way from the high fountains to join the river. The life-giving Merced flows down the valley with a slow, stately current, curving hither and thither through garden and grove, bright and pure as the snow of its fountains. Such is Yosemite, the noblest of Sierra temples, everywhere expressing the working of divine harmonious law, yet so little understood that it has been regarded as an exceptional creation, or rather exceptional destruction, accompanied by violent and mysterious forces. The argument advanced to support this view is substantially as follows. It is too wide for a water-eroded valley, too irregular for a fissure valley, and too angular and local for a primary valley originating in a fold of the mountain surface during the process of upheaval. Therefore, a portion of the mountain bottom must have suddenly fallen out, letting the superincumbent domes and peaks fall rumbling into the abyss like coal into the bunker of a ship. This violent hypothesis, which furnishes a kind of tophet for the reception of bad mountains, commends itself to the favor of many by seeming to account for the remarkable sheerness and angularity of the walls and by its marvelousness and obscurity, calling for no investigation, but rather discouraging it. Because we cannot observe the bedrock to ascertain whether or not it is fractured, this engulfment hypothesis seems to rest safely under cover of darkness. Yet a film of lake gravel and a meadow blanket are its only concealments, and by comparison with exposed sections in other Yosemites where the sheer walls unite with the solid, unfissured bottom, even these are in effect removed. It becomes manifest by a slight attention to facts that the hypothetical subsidence must have been limited to the valley proper because both at the head and foot we find the solid bedrock. The breaking down of only one small portion of the mountain floor, leaving all adjacent to it undisturbed, would necessarily give rise to a very strongly marked line of demarcation, but no such line appears. On the contrary, the unchanged walls are continued indefinitely 
up and down the river canyon and lose their distinguishing characteristics in a gradual manner easily accounted for by changes in the structure of the rocks and lack of concentration of the glacial energy expended upon them. That there is comparatively so small a quantity of debris at the foot of Yosemite walls is advanced as an argument in favor of subsidence on the grounds that the valley is very old and that a vast quantity of debris must therefore have fallen from the walls by atmospheric agencies and that the hypothetical abyss was exactly required to furnish storage for it. But the Yosemite Valley is not very old. It is very young and no vast quantity of debris has ever fallen from its walls. Therefore, no abyss was required for its accommodation. If, in accordance with the hypothesis, Yosemite is the only valley furnished with an abyss for the reception of debris, then we might expect to find all abyssless valleys choked up with the great quantity assumed to have fallen, but on the contrary, we find their debris in the same condition as in Yosemite and not more abundant. Indeed, in some portions of valleys as deep and sheer as Yosemite, there is absolutely no talus, and that there never has been any is proved by both walls and bottom being solid and ice-polished. Many examples illustrative of this truth may be seen in the Great Tuolumne and King River Valleys. Where the granite of Yosemite walls is intersected with feldspathic veins, as in the lowest of the Three Brothers and rocks near cathedral spires, large masses are loosened from time to time by the action of the atmosphere and hurled to the bottom with such violence as to shake the whole valley. But the aggregate quantity which has been thus weathered off so far from being sufficient to fill any great abyss forms but a small part of the debris slopes actually found on the surface, all the larger angular taluses having been formed simultaneously by severe earthquake shocks that occurred three or four hundred years ago, as shown by their forms and the trees growing upon them. The attentive observer will perceive that wherever a large talus occurs, the wall immediately above it presents a scarred and shattered surface, whose area is always proportional to the size of the talus. But where there is no talus, the wall is invariably moutonnée or striated, showing that it is young and has suffered little change since it came to light at the close of the glacial period. On the 23rd of March, 1872, I was so fortunate as to witness the sudden formation of one of these interesting taluses by the precipitation of the Yosemite Eagle Rock by the first heavy shock of the Inyo earthquake, whereby the local character and simultaneity of formation was fully accounted for. This new earthquake gave rise to the formation of many new taluses throughout the adjacent valleys, corresponding in every particular with the older and larger ones whose history we have been considering. As to the important question, what part may water have played in the formation of Sierra Valleys? We observe that, as far as Yosemite is concerned, the five large streams which flow through it are universally engaged in the work of filling it up. The granite of the region under consideration is but slightly susceptible to water denudation. 
Throughout the greater portion of the main upper Merced Valley, the river has not eroded its channel to a depth exceeding three feet since it first began to flow at the close of the glacial epoch, although acting under every advantage of concentration and quick descent. The highest flood mark the Young River has yet recorded upon the clean glacial tablets of its banks is only seven or eight feet above their present level at ordinary stages. Nevertheless, the aggregate annual quantity that formerly passed down these canyon valleys was undoubtedly far greater than passes at the present time, because on the gradual recession of the glaciers at the dose of the period, the supply would necessarily be more constant from their melting all through the seasons. The evidence, however, is incontestable, which shows that the highest floods of the Sierra rivers in the upper and middle regions of the range never much exceeded those of the present time. Five immense glaciers from five to 1,500 feet in depth poured their icy floods into Yosemite, united to form one huge trunk, moved down through the valley with irresistible and never-ceasing energy, crushing and breaking up its strongest rocks and scattering them in moraines far and near. Many, while admitting the possibility of ice having been the great agent in the production of Yosemite Valley's conjecture that earthquake fissures or cracks from cooling or upheaval of the earth's crust were required to enable the glaciers to make a beginning and to guide them in the work. We have already shown in the earlier chapter about mountain sculpture that cleavage planes and joints exist in a latent or developed condition in all the granite of the region and that these exert immense influence on its glacial erodibility. During the five years' observation in the Sierra, I have failed to discover a single fissure of any kind, although extensive areas of clean-swept glacial pavements afford ample opportunity for their detection, did they exist. Deep slots with regular walls appearing as if sawed or mortised frequently occur. These are formed by the disintegration of soft seams a few inches or feet in thickness contained between walls of stronger granite. Such is the character of the so-called fissures said to exist in a hard portion of the south wall of the Yosemite opposite the Three Brothers, so frequently quoted in speculations upon the valley's origin. The greatest effects of earthquakes on the valley we have already noticed in avalanche taluses, which were formed by the precipitation of weak headlands that fell like ripe fruit. The greatest obstacle in the way of reading the history of Yosemite valleys is not its complexity or obscurity, but simply the magnitude of the characters in which it is written. It would require years of enthusiastic study to master the English alphabet if it were carved upon the flank in the Sierra in letters 60 or 70 miles long, their bases set in the foothills, their tops leaning back among the glaciers and shattered peaks of the summit, often veiled with forests and thickets, and their continuity often broken by cross-gorges and hills. So also the sculptured alphabet canyons of the Sierra are magnificently simple, yet demand years of laborious research for their apprehension. A thousand blurred fragments must be conned and brooded over with studious care 
and kept vital and formative on the edges, ready to knit like broken living bones, while a final judgment is being bravely withheld until the entire series of phenomena has been weighed and referred to an all-unifying, all-explaining law. To one who can leisurely contemplate Yosemite from some commanding outlook, it offers as a whole a far more natural combination of features than is at all apparent in partial views obtained from the bottom. Its stupendous domes and battlements blend together and manifest delicate compliance to law, for the mind is then in some measure emancipated from the repressive and enslaving effects of their separate magnitudes, and gradually rises to a comprehension of their unity and of the poised harmony of their general relations. Nature is not so poor as to possess any one of anything, nor throughout her varied realms has she ever been known to offer an exceptional creation, whether of mountain or valley. When therefore we explore the adjacent Sierra, we are not astounded to find that there are many Yosemite valleys identical in general characters, each presenting on a varying scale the same species of mural precipices, level meadows, and lofty waterfalls. The laws which preside over their distribution are as constant and apparent as those governing the distribution of forest trees. They occur only in the middle region of the chain, where the declivity is considerable and where the granite is Yosemitic in its internal structure. The position of each valley upon the Yosemitic zone indicates a marked and inseparable relation to the ancient glaciers, which when fully deciphered amounts to cause and effect. So constant and obvious is this connection between the various Yosemites that the Neve amphitheaters, which fountain the ancient ice rivers, that an observer inexperienced in these phenomena might easily anticipate the position and size of any Yosemite by a study of the glacial fountains above it, or the position and size of the fountains by a study of their complementary Yosemite. All Yosemites occur at the junction of two or more glacial canyons. Thus, the greater and lesser Yosemites of the Merced, Hetch Hetchy, and those of the Upper Tuolumne, those of Kings River and the San Joaquin, all occur immediately below the confluence of their ancient glaciers. If, in following down the canyon channel of the Merced Glacier, from its origin in the Neve amphitheaters of the Lyle Group, we should find that its sudden expansion and deepening at Yosemite occurs without a corresponding union of glacial tributary canyons and without any similar expansion elsewhere, then we might be driven to the doctrine of special marvels. But this emphatic deepening and widening becomes harmonious when we observe smaller Yosemites occurring at intervals all the way down across the Yosemitic zone whenever a tributary canyon unites with the trunk, until on reaching Yosemite where the enlargement is greatest, we find the number of confluent glacier canyons is also greatest, as may be observed by reference to figure one. Still further, the aggregate areas of their cross-sections is approximately equal to the area of the cross-sections of the several resulting Yosemites, just as the cross-section of a tree trunk is about equal to the sum of the section of its branches. 
Furthermore, the trend of Yosemite valleys is always a direct result of the sizes, directions, and declivities of their confluent canyons, modified by peculiarities of structure in their rocks. Now all the canyons mentioned above are the abandoned channels of glaciers. Therefore, these Yosemites and their glaciers are inseparably related. Instead of being local in character, or formed by obscure and lawless forces, these valleys are the only great sculpture phenomena whose existence and exact positions we may confidently anticipate. Thank you for joining me for the Pedro the Water Dog Peace Podcast. Until next time, sit with yourself in silence every day. That self with a capital S. We are all scholars of peace. Peace and love to you all. You can read the full book, Studies in the Sierra by John Muir, at the Sierra Club site. A link is in the show notes. Podcast music is Dalai Lama Riding a Bike by Javier Peque Rodriguez. A link to his music on Spotify and Bandcamp are in the show notes. Support messages of peace in the planet by joining my Patreon for as little as a cup of coffee per month at patreon.com. Just search Avis Kalbsbeck or Pedro the Water Dog to find me. Pedro the Water Dog Saves the Planet books 1 through 5 are available at all your favorite online bookstores or at avaskalfspec.com. Book 1, One More Year, is available as an audiobook on all the audiobook sites with the other books coming soon to audio. If you enjoyed this episode or are at least curious about the future ones, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you again. Listen for the peace.